I'm Hannah. I'm the pastor here at the Wicker Park site of Urban Village Church, a church that lives in many places, wherever you are, and then four more besides. And I wanted to say something before we begin our prayer for the sermon, which is that somebody came up to me after our first service. One of our members here at Urban Village manages a Food for Less in Chicago Heights, and she's looking to hire 10 people. And she said, you don't need experience. She's looking for people who are reliable. They're expanding the store, people to work grocery, people to work deli, people to work the sales floor. So if you are looking for a job, she said, please send people who are looking for a job to me. So let me know and we can connect you. And then if you are in a place of prayer, please pray with me. God of grace, God of power, God of mercy and healing and might, be with us this day. Be in our hearts. Help us to see you in all that those around us are and all that we are. Help us to rely on your grace and believe that it is real. In the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts, help us to find you. And if our words or our actions or our meditations should not be of you, if they should lead us or others astray, help us to figure it out, to notice, and to repent, which simply means to turn around and try one of your second or 10th or 77th chances in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Some of you know that I have a four-year-old and a one-and-a-half-year-old, which means that we talk a lot about fairness in my house, about what is fair and what is equal and who gets what. My children are very concerned with ensuring that there is fairness in the number of minutes that each one of them gets to sit on my lap, that there is no partiality and the size of the cookie that every child in the house gets. It is not hard for me to imagine my four-year-old if she is frustrated with her little brother and his taking of her toys, yelling, there is no partiality in our Lord Jesus Christ. (laughs) Not a long walk from who she is, not a long walk from what she cares about. Uh, And this isn't just them, right? It's not just because they were raised in my house or a Christian house. This is really, really common to kids in general. Fairness is one of the things that they are most concerned with. Uh, I was reading a really interesting study this week as I was thinking about fairness. Kids develop a strong sense of fairness and a willingness to not get things that they want and like in order for things to be fair by the time that they are 12 months old, 12 months old. I read research by a professor who, um, this sounds like a weird way to spend your days, but like learning is good. She gets pairs of kids together and she'll give one kid three candies and one kid one candy, and then one kid gets to decide, do we go with this split or not? Um, And right under the split of three to one, it's not fair, but both kids get more candy than zero. So you'd think they would say yes every time, but no, in fact, both the kid who gets more and the kid who gets less will more often reject unfairness rather than get candy, right? Think about this when you were a kid. They would rather reject unfairness than get candy. (laughs) Fairness really matters to us. Fairness is something that our soul 
seeks, um, lack of fairness disrupts something inside of us, gives us a righteous anger, a sense of unsettledness that cannot be settled by anything but justice. We have that sense when we're kids, and, and as we grow, um, something happens. Somehow we begin to define fairness as what's best for us rather than what's best for all. And that instinct for fairness can still do good, and it can also be an excuse for doing ill to ourselves and to the world. When I look at the biblical witness, one of the things that I think about often is is how frequently this sense of fairness and power and who's for what and who's with what and are things fair is at the heart of people's concerns with God. That Cain, when he murders his brother, the first sin of the Bible, right? Um, The greatest, that that murder and destruction reign. Um, He does it because he believes he has been disfavored. That God has looked with more favor on his brother than on him. His sense of what is fair is not the same as God's sense of what is fair. And out of his sense of rage, he commits destruction. On the positive side of the ledger, right, we have Abraham who is so concerned with fairness that he will fight God (laughs) over whether other people should be punished for what their cities do. That he says to God, I will not stand what you are about to do. It is not fair and I cannot abide it. This instinct for fairness shapes us and our communities and how we follow God and who we are. And it shapes this scripture passage that we read today from the book of James. The book of James, one of my favorite books of the Bible, but often um, underread, I think, in part because it's so practical in its Christian wisdom. It's so specific in what it thinks a good life of following Jesus looks like that it makes us uncomfortable, and so we stop reading it. (laughs) But it's one of my favorites, and James, who wrote this book, uh, was also known as James the Just, which is a really sweet nickname, Uh, and he was the little brother, according to tradition, of Jesus. He grew up in Jesus's house as one of Mary and Joseph's, you know, post-virgin birth children, and so A, just side note, I wonder a lot about what those sibling relationships were like, right? Uh, What's fighting over fairness like with Jesus, Um, because Jesus is human, right? So maybe Jesus, just like an adult, he felt hunger and sadness and anger. Maybe Jesus, as a kid, did fight over the cookie and was like, shut up, James, it's mine. Um, Or maybe Jesus was God from day one and understood what it was. And honestly, I think this might be more annoying. Um, When James was like, I want the cookie, Jesus, Jesus would be like, the cookie go with you. Right, um, and and just like imagine if your older brother was that annoyingly nice to you all of the time. Uh, but whatever their sibling relationship was like as kids, what James has taken away by the time he is an adult is this deep intimacy with and care for what Jesus says the kingdom will look like, which is a place of liberation and equity for all. That is concerned with fairness not just at the interpersonal level, 
Not just in the way that we relate with one another day to day, but with fairness and equity and what they look like at the level of community. Because what James's big brother Jesus has promised us is a kingdom in which all chains are broken, all oppression destroyed, all people free of tears and living with one another in love, in mercy, and in justice. And James says, no part of the law is real. No part of the community is whole. We are not followers of Jesus Christ our Lord, and we have not figured out how to be Christian unless we live in communities that are fair and free of disfavor. Let's bring back up this scripture. James um, was a pastor, we think, in Jerusalem. So he was pastoring a church, and he was writing this and considering this, and He starts with some of the individual interpersonal stuff that is a level at which many of us experience unfairness, right? So he says, if you're in church, try hard to imagine it. I don't know if you can. (laughs) Um, If you're in church and somebody walks in with sick robes and they look really rich, right? Or it's like whatever, a $250 ripped t-shirt, but you can tell that it's expensive. (laughs) And somebody else walks in with dirty, ripped, torn clothes. You can tell that they're poor. If you treat them differently from one another, you have forgotten who Jesus is, right? You are not living out what it means to love Jesus Christ. The interpersonal stuff does matter. How we treat one another on a day-to-day basis does matter. And James goes to another level. He says that isn't the only way that favor and disfavor, fairness and unfairness manifest themselves in our Christian life. There is this level of the community. Let's go to the next one. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who oppress you? Is it not they who drag you into court? Is it not they who blaspheme the excellent name that was invoked over you? The way that unfairness and disfavor, which are against the will of God and against the nature of Christ, make themselves known in our lives is not just at the personal, it's at the system level. That the fact that courts treat poor people differently than rich people is not only unfair, it is a sin against God. And if you collude with that system, if you support that system, if you don't fight that system where the courts are unfair, it is exactly like a poor person walking into church and you treating them like crap. It matters just as much to your Christian life, and it matters just as much to the witness of your church. If you're not paying attention to systems of disfavor, you have done nothing, nothing to love your neighbor as you love yourself, which at the end of the day, James says, is what it means to follow Jesus. And so this is why this scripture is the one we have chosen to kick us off, to lead us and guide us, In the sermon series we're going to be doing for the next month, Courageous Conversations, Collective Liberation, which is about our church's commitment and our Christian commitment to anti-racist work in the world. Because what was for James disfavor of poor and rich that made itself both known in his community and known at the level of the system, 
For us is known not only in poor and rich, but especially in our culture and our community by race and racism. Racism is the system that causes disfavor for those who enter our court system or our school system or our neighborhoods and our lives and find that those systems do not treat them as beloved children of God, but differently based on race, racial group, and racial affiliation. This is the system of disfavor and sin that if we are to love our neighbor, we must take a part in the world that we live in, it and many others. But we're focusing on it so that we can learn this process that Jesus calls us to of caring about the personal, but also caring about the community and the ways it has fallen short of the kingdom and the ways that we are demanded to care about that if we're ever going to say that we love and follow Jesus Christ. So throughout this series, we're going to talk about a lot of um, tools that you can use to figure out what it would mean to be a Christian who is anti-racist, a Christian who takes apart racism in your personal life, but also takes apart racism in the community and takes apart racism in the system. But today we really want to talk about what racism is. Because I think one of the things that um, many churches have offered a, a broken teaching about, an unhelpful witness about, is that we have talked about racism as if it's something that primarily happens at the level of the personal, rather than at the level of the community. We have talked about racial reconciliation and told the lie that if a black person and a white person can be nice to each other in a room, done, we're solved, racism, goodbye, right? When in fact we know that there are whole systems of courts, of schools, of workplaces, of us, that make these, these sources of disfavor a part of the water we swim in, a part of the soup we live in. And if we don't take them apart at that level, they will continue to interfere with the life of Christ and the people of Christ and any sense of fairness that we might have in the world. Approaching this is going to be different for each one of us. We're coming from different levels. Some of us might have been on the anti-racist journey for many, many years, and these concepts are really familiar to us, and it's about deepening um, the ways that we live and act in the world. For some of you, this may be the first time that you're hearing that anti-racism is a part of the call that Jesus makes upon our lives. For some of us, we are black or Latinx or Asian. We are people of color who are targeted by racism in different ways in this culture and community. Um, we are Native American. And part of what studying racism looks like is figuring out how to survive it, right? How to like live in it and continue to be whole and to be beloved and to thrive. Sometimes being alive is resistance to a system that wants to hurt you and wants to destroy you and wants to make you believe that you are not fully as human um, and glorious as anybody else. For those of us who are white, it's a deeper challenge to undo the levels at which we have been taught to think of ourselves as superior to think of racism as not our problem, and to ignore the ways in which our siblings in Christ are being destroyed every day by systems that we could help to challenge and to take apart. The journey will be different for each of us, but the journey has to be a part of our discipleship if we are gonna be truthful to the things we have said about who Jesus is 
and the things we have said about what the kingdom promises. That is what James teaches us today. And, and I want to talk a little bit about one example of that that's been going around the church, at least my church friends and communities, the last couple of weeks. Um, and that's the difficult, sad, and angering story uh, of Botham Jean, a young man who was killed in his own home by an off-duty uh, white police officer named Amber Geiger in Dallas last year. And um, two weeks ago, uh, Amber, was, uh, Amber Geiger was sentenced, right? So she was found guilty by a jury that was much more racially diverse than most juries in America. It turns out that it matters when people who are like us consider our lives and consider what has happened to us. Um, and at that sentencing, Botham's younger brother, Brandt, hugged Amber Geiger and said that he forgave her. And I am not here for anybody who wants to dismiss that act, right? Brandt is an 18-year-old who is trying to deal with a more traumatic event than many of us can imagine. He is trying to process the worst thing that has ever happened to him, his love for his brother, his faith in Christ. And the way that he did that was this act of forgiveness that I believe took great capacity and bravery from him. And, and, <laughs> That moment went so viral. <laughs> every media organization was covering it. And especially every church I knew and every white Christian I knew was sharing it, right? And saying, forgiveness, this is what Jesus calls us to. Forgiveness, forgiveness, forgiveness. And I just couldn't help but think, Brandt's been around this whole time. Why is this the first story that you're telling about him and his journey and his pain? Botham's family has been around this whole time. His mother, on the same day as this hug, uh, told the press about how much it had destroyed her to lose her child and how much she hoped that the system would change to provide justice for the next person who was targeted, for the next person who was made vulnerable by a system that does not love and does not suffer for black lives and to care about them. Why was this one moment being amplified by our systems and these other moments were not? And the answer is that that one moment tells a story that what will solve racism is black people making sacrifices to make white people okay. Whereas talking about all that other stuff would tell us that challenging racism is gonna take a lot of work on the part of all of us, but particularly white people giving stuff up. And that's not the story that most of our criminal justice system, media system, church system want to tell. But if we are going to do what the book of James calls us to do, if we are going to attack racism at its root where it hurts us and kills us and where it takes us away from Jesus, that is what we will have to do. And so I wanted to do one thing before our worship ends today, which is um, the Greek word for uh, favoritism that the book uses, favor, uh, one of the other ways to translate it is that when it talks about favoring somebody, it talks about shining face on them, shining on their face. And when it talks about being unfair to somebody, not favoring them, it talks about taking their face away, taking their face 
away, that one of the things that systems of disfavor that dishonor Christ do is that they take the faces away from beloved children of God and take attention away from who they are and their full humanity and the things it would take to take apart the systems that target them. And so I want us to together shine a light on the faces of the people of this story because it's not just going to be personal acts that take um, that take on and challenge what happened to this person. And we know that from the people who have died after him. And so I want to introduce you to a couple of people. One is Botham Jean. Um, this is Botham. This is his face. This is who he was. He was an accountant. Um, he apparently was like quite a bit of a nerd. Um, he loved numbers and would stay up late on his computer and doing work. Um, and he loved music. He grew up in the church and was deeply formed by his faith. His parents were immigrants from St. Lucia. And on the day that he died, his neighbor said that all day he was singing, mostly gospel and Drake, gospel and Drake, um, which I think most of us can imagine a day like that in our lives. He was someone who was deeply beloved by his two brothers and his parents, and there is nothing, there is no act of kindness or forgiveness that can take away the loss that is the loss of his life. If we're not going to lose more people, we're going to have to be braver and stronger and take apart the system. This is who both of them was. One of the things that no personal act can take apart is that um, after, after Botham's killer was sentenced, one of the main witnesses in his trial, Joshua Brown, was killed, also at his home. Um, and the story that has been told about his killing so far is frankly like wildly unbelievable. Um, and so nobody really knows what has happened to him yet. But this is Joshua Brown. Joshua Brown was a football player in Florida in college. Um, he was one of eight kids. He had seven brothers and sisters. After he was a football player, he became an entrepreneur. He wanted to do real estate, and so he managed Airbnb properties in multiple states. Um, so he must have had some, like, a lot of, I think, interpersonal charm and skills because a lot of us know how that works. Um, and, and he had a vision for how he wanted his life to be. He wanted to get more and more properties, and he wanted to build on them, and he wanted to have a big business where he would employ other people and make homes for people across the country. Um, Joshua Brown is gone, and there is nothing that will change that except taking apart the system that makes police, media, and courts not value black lives. And finally, I wanted to introduce you to um, Tay Jefferson, a Tatiana, um, who was killed in her home in Fort Worth two nights ago. Two nights ago. Because one of her neighbors who cared about her saw her door open at 2 AM, thought she might be in trouble, and called a non-emergency number. And when the police showed up from the time that they uh, announced themselves to the time that they shot her was four seconds. She was studying biology and chemistry. She loved science. One of the videos you can find of her online is a YouTube video of her doing an AP bio presentation with a big skeleton. And she loves it. She loves talking about um, the science of the body and the science of the world and how it all works. She was living where she was living in order to take care of her family, her eight-year-old nephew and her mother. Um, and she was apparently playing video games with her nephew when she died. 
We live in a world that wants to take these faces away, that wants to disfavor them so much that they are forgotten and not seen, and that more and more people get taken away, and we never acknowledge what it would take to stop it. If we are going to love Jesus, if we are going to love our neighbor, if we are going to call ourselves Christian, we cannot unless we turn our faces towards and put shine on the faces of those who have been lost in the name of the pernicious sin of racism and commit ourselves, even if we won't accomplish it on our own or accomplish it in our lifetimes, to offering our bodies and souls and time in service of taking that system of disfavor apart. Too many lives have been lost already, too many more will be if we don't commit ourselves. So let us make that commitment to Jesus Christ who made us, to Jesus Christ who loves us, and to those children of God who have been lost so far that more might not be lost along the way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're about to share Holy Communion together, which we share um, in communion with those with whom we share very little and those with whom we share very much, and especially communion across the lines of the living and the dead. We take communion with every person who we have ever lost. We take communion with every person that we have ever loved because God knows no boundaries among us.